I'm aware this morning that it is quite likely that among us are people who aren't exactly sure why Jesus is better. The winds of our pluralistic, inclusive, tolerant society are beginning to, to sweep you out into the currents of postmodernism. And you hear people say that all the gods are the same. And you hear people say that, that all of them are teaching generally the same thing and, and are generally headed in the same direction. And for you it feels like hate. That we as Christians are audacious enough to say that Muslims are wrong and that Mormons are wrong and that Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong and that secular, secular atheists are wrong. And because we live in this world of pluralism, because we, we live in this world of tolerance, it has become a, a thing where, where hate is camouflaged, in fact, in love. Because this morning I contend to you that it would be hate for me to tell you that we're all the same. That it would be hate for me to tell you that we are all teaching the same things, that we are all headed in generally the same direction. It would be hate because I know different. So this morning, my, my goal is simple. I want to teach you that Jesus is better. That Jesus is better. That Jesus is better than all of the gods that we find and build with our own hands. That Jesus is better than mansions, and Jesus is better than Mercedes, and Jesus is better than Ralph Lauren, and Jesus is better than everything that you can accumulate for yourself here. He's better. And that Jesus is not just better than all the things that we build is with our own hands. He's better than all the, the religions that we create with our own minds and our own imaginations. That, that Jesus is better than Islam. And Jesus is better than Mormonism. That, that Jesus is supreme. This morning I hope, especially for those of you that are parents and those of you that are children and teenagers, I hope that you will listen up because in the school systems now, in the colleges at you get, as you get there, you are going to be told that it is hate for you to be so audacious as to say that you are right and other people are wrong. So lock in with me. This morning we're going to be, getting a, be beginning a new series and for four weeks we're going to go through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 leading up to Easter and we're going to be hearing... Paul's argument for the resurrection, Paul's argument on, on what the resurrection is, on what, the resurrect, what we can expect in our own resurrection, and what the resurrection means for all of us who are secured in Christ. As we head into 1 Corinthians 15, it's important for us to know that we are stepping into a church in turmoil. We are stepping into the midst of a church that is a divided church, a church that is not even sure that Paul himself is an apostle. And so throughout the book, he is actually making the case, and we're going to hear him even talking some about that this morning, that, that he is in fact an apostle. And among those in the Corinthian church were, were many who doubted the nature of the resurrection. And so for all of us, as we move toward this time of year in which we celebrate the resurrection... We're going to hear Paul make a compelling case as to what it is and why it's significant for us. So if you would stand with me this morning as we read 1 Corinthians 1 through 11 together. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Verse 1 says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, 
and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. And so this morning, as Paul begins to to frame up his argument, as as Paul begins to frame up his case on the resurrection and and, kind of set this whole thing up, what he says is, he says, I want to remind you of the basics. I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. I want to remind you of how all of us came together and remind you of how all of this got started in the beginning. I want to remind you of of the things that I've said to you because apparently some of you have lost faith. Apparently some of you have have lost your way and and you're no longer holding fast to the word. And so that you might hold fast, so that your belief might not be in vain, let me me remind you of some of the things that I said. Now, it's important to notice what he says. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. What Paul is coming and he's saying, look, this is the big things. This is the big picture. We're going we're gonna to talk about the major things, that, that this is the dividing line. In other words, that the things that we're talking about this morning, if we don't all believe these things, we can't even worship together. And we can't worship together because if we don't all believe these things, we are worshiping different gods. We are worshiping a completely different God, celebrating a completely different gospel because these are the core values of the faith. This is what builds up the gospel and makes up the faith. And so if this is the dividing line for us even this morning among us at Iron City. At Iron City, if this is not what we can affirm, if this is not what you can affirm, this is not the fellowship for you. This is because this is who we are and this is what we celebrate. There is no flexibility here. There is no middle ground here. There is no room for gray area here. There is no room for debate here. This is of first importance. This is primary. And so as he begins to unpack this, we begin to see the nature of this gospel that Paul has preached. And I think the first thing that we see about this gospel that Paul has preached is that it is a gospel of the scriptures. It is a gospel of the scriptures. You'll notice that The scriptures are primary in what Paul is talking about. In verse 2, he talks about holding fast to the word I preached to you, the scriptures. And then he gets to, at the end of verse 3, and he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And then in verse 4, he says, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That Paul is teaching us that this, this gospel that he is speaking is not something that he has come up with his own mind. That this is not something that he has come, come up with in his own wisdom. 
That this, in fact, is the same gospel that has predated for thousands of years, dating all the way back to the writings of Moses and to Job and, and as far back as we can go. That the gospel that he is preaching is the same gospel that the prophets have always been preaching. It's the same gospel that God's word has always been talking about. Now, I think there's a point in there that we need to learn, we need to talk about for a second. We need to realize that as Paul is talking about the scriptures here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that he's talking primarily about the Old Testament. See, Paul, the, the New Testament was still being revealed. So when Paul talks about the, the scriptures here, and, and then in 2 Timothy chapter 3, when he talks about how the scriptures are God-breathed, that the, they've actually been breathed out by the breath of God and are now profitable for us and helpful for us, primarily what's in view for Paul is the Old Testament. Now there seems to be a common trend among Christians today that discount the Old Testament. That believes somehow the Old Testament is less relevant than the New Testament. And I want you to hear me say as strongly as I know how to say, that's heresy. That's heresy. It's heresy because it presupposes that the gospel must be different in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. That the God of the Old Testament is a different God than we have in the New Testament. You see, the problem with that perspective, the problem with the perspective that the Old Testament is somehow less relevant than the New Testament is that it dishonors Jesus. Why? Because Jesus himself says that he is at the center of all of it. In Luke 24, 27, on the Emmaus Road, after his resurrection, he is gathered with a couple of disciples. You know what it says? It says that he goes all the way back to the writings and to the, to the Psalms and to the prophets, and he shows where he is in all of it. That from Genesis all the way to Revelation, it's about the same person. The main character is the same in Genesis as it is in Matthew, as it is in Romans, as it is in Galatians, as it is in Hebrews, as it is in Revelation. It's Christ. It's Christ. The Old Testament is preaching the cross of Christ just as the Gospels are. And so to say that they are less relevant, to say that they are less helpful, to say that they are less important for us is to say that, is to in some way discount Christ and his work and the gospel in them. And so Iron City, let us not be guilty of that. Let us not be guilty of that. Let us, let us take in all of the God-breathedness of scripture. Let us take in all of God's word that he says is profitable for us and helpful for us. And let us feast on God's word, not just taking a small third of it, but the whole thing. All of the canon. Now as he unpacks this gospel of scriptures, the first thing that he tells us is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Now as Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2 and his sermon at Pentecost, it was the destiny of Jesus according to the determined will of God to come as he was born into the world. It was the destiny of Jesus to go to the cross. Did you realize that? It was not something that surprises Jesus at the end of his life. It was not something that God comes up with on the fly. It was not something that God decided as humans decided what they would do with Jesus. He decided what his plan would be for Jesus. No, according to the definite plan of God, Acts 2.24 says, we crucified him. That his destiny was always the cross and it was always the cross because if Jesus' destiny is not the cross, there is no way for our destiny to not be hell. The wages of sin is death. And all of us in our sin were owed death. All of us in our sin deserved death. All of us in our sin were destined for death. But God has made a way. 
God has made a way. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. And so Jesus is born, and he is, comes into the world destined for the cross, destined for the torture at the beating pole, destined for the torture as the nails are rammed into his wrist, destined for the crown of thorns to be rammed onto the crown of his head. Destined to hang between two thieves as though he himself was a sinner and a thief. And in the cross, what we are reminded of and what we learn of is of Jesus' humanity. You see, Jesus had to come and he had to be fully human. The gospel necessitates it. And the reason that God, the reason that Jesus had to be fully human is that he had to be able to do what God couldn't do. And you know what God can't do? God can't die. And because the wages of sin is death, if he was going to take our place, if he was going to satisfy the justice of God, if he was going to satisfy the wrath of God, he would have to die. And so he comes, and as Hebrews says, he comes just as we are. He hurts as we hurt. He cries as we cry. He gets hungry. He got hungry as we get hungry. He struggled as we struggle. He tasted the bitterness of death so that we ourselves would not have to taste of its bitterness. Now Christ came and he came so that he might identify with us. And the preacher of Hebrews reminds us that we are not without, we are not with an unsympathetic Savior. Our Savior knows our struggles. Our Savior has walked in our shoes. Our Savior has felt our pressures. Our Savior has felt our needs. Our Savior knows what it's like to grieve a friend and perhaps even grieve a father that dies. Our Savior knows. And he is sympathetic with us. And he dies, not just that he died, but he died, as Paul says, in accordance with the Scriptures. In accordance with the Scriptures. That all of the Old Testament pointing ahead to Christ, all of it is doing what? It is preaching of Christ. Preaching of Christ. We go back to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the first sin that comes into the world. And, and immediately what happens is, is they are aware completely of their nakedness. Reminding us of the exposure of our sin. And where do we see Christ? We see Christ in that, the, that God takes and he, and he slaughters an animal. And he takes the skin of the animal and he covers their nakedness. Reminding us that it will be the slaughtered Christ that will cover our nakedness before God. That will cover our sinfulness before him. Genesis 3 is preaching Christ. Then we would go to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, Abraham takes Isaac and he, and he takes him up on top of the mountain. And he lays his son on top of the wood, preparing it for him, preparing to, to kill him. To offer him as a sacrifice to the Lord. And as Isaac raises the knife to plunge it into the heart of his beloved son, he looks. And God has provided a ram. He has provided a ram that will take his place. He has provided a sacrifice that will substitute for his son. And what is that? It is being preached that Christ is the lamb. Christ is the ram that will come and lay on the altar for us that will take our death. He is the substitute that he will take our destiny so that we might get his. We fast forward to Exodus chapter 12. We go to Exodus chapter 12 and 
the people of Israel are, are trying desperately to get out of Egypt. And God has promised that he will deliver them through Moses. Pharaoh has hardened his heart time and time again. And so God has decided that, that his wrath will be felt all across Egypt. And, and the firstborn of every household will, will be slaughtered. But his people take and they take the blood of the lamb and they, they, they pour it over the doorposts. And as the wrath of God passes over Egypt, it passes over all of his people. And it's preaching Christ. It's preaching Christ. That for all of us that are covered in the blood of the Lamb, the wrath of God will be fully satisfied. The wrath of God will be fully justified and will pass over us in his atoning work. We go to Isaiah 53 and we read of the suffering servant. We read of how he will be crushed for our iniquities. He will die so that we don't have to, so that we aren't crushed for our iniquity, so that we don't feel the breadth of our sinfulness. He instead will feel it, and he will suffer in our place as our servant. But it's not just there. Every sacrifice in Leviticus, every prophet prophecy in the minor prophets, every psalm that is written, every proverb that is given, every comma that is in there is all doing the same thing. It is preaching and proclaiming to us that Christ is the risen Savior and Christ has come to die in our place. And so this morning I want you to know, brothers and sisters, the Old Testament is not irrelevant. No, the Old Testament is dripping with the gospel. The Old, Old Testament is filled with Christ himself who came and who died for our sins, for your sins. He says he doesn't just die, he's buried. He's buried and, and we see that he's, he's already told us he's fully human and now what is he telling us? He's telling us that he is fully dead. That Christ would have been wrapped in, he would have been wrapped in uh, grave cloths that were so tight it would have smothered him so heavy it would have crushed his sternum. And he's left there for three days. He doesn't stay there, does he? He doesn't stay there, does he, church? He doesn't stay there. No, it says in three days, he raises from the dead. He raises from the dead. Jesus had told us that the temple would be destroyed, but in three days it would rise. And Christ, true to his word, rises from the dead. If in his death we see his humanity, in his resurrection we see his deity. See, Jesus told us that he was God, right? Throughout, throughout the Gospels, as, as Jesus says, he says, I am the way, right? If you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I have the power to forgive sins. I am going to go and prepare a place for you. I am God. I will do what God can do. But what do we see in the resurrection? What we see in the resurrection is the confirmation of that, right? It wasn't just enough that he tells us that. What good does that do us? As a matter of fact, had Jesus just come and died, it would have been a nice thing for him to do. It would have been, it would have been incredibly sacrificial. It would have been perhaps a good teaching point, but it would have been absolutely powerless. Jesus could have been loving but, uh, but uh, impotent. He could have been sacrificial but ineffective. But Jesus didn't just die. 
Jesus came, he died for our sins, was buried three days, and then was raised from the dead, showing, I am God, he is God. Because only God has power over the grave. Only God has power over death. Only God can be raised from the dead. So he's, he's fully human for the purpose of dying, because God can't die, but he's fully God for the purpose of defeating death, of, of being raised out of death. And this is in accordance with the scriptures too. Paul says it. That this too is in accordance with scripture. Psalm 16, Peter quotes this as he's talking about the resurrection in chapter 2 of Acts. And in Psalm 16 it says that I will not forsake you in Sheol. And what is he saying? He's saying, look, he's going to die, he's going to be buried, but he's not going to stay there. Isaiah 53, we talk about the suffering servant. Sure, he's, he's, uh, he's bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. But what does it say right after that? It says that he will prosper and that he will reign. In other words, he's going to die, but he's going to be raised up and he's going to live and he's going to reign forever. And every single time we read in the Old Testament, seeing how necessary Jesus' death is for us. Every time we read the law and we're reminded of how far short of it that we fall. Every time we read and we see of the blood necessitated by the sacrifices, the blood necessitated by our sins, what all of those passages are preaching is that we need a Savior that can defeat that. That we need a Savior that can defeat the grave. That we need a Savior that can come and live perfectly as only God can do and then be raised from the dead on our behalf. This morning, don't you see Jesus is better? Don't you see Jesus is better than all of the other gods? Don't you see that Jesus is better than all of the other ways? Go to the grave of Buddha and you know what you'll find? His bones. Go to the grave of Muhammad and you know what you'll find? You'll find his bones. Go to the grave of Joseph Smith and guess what's there? His bones are there. Go to Jesus' grave. There are no bones there. He's transcendent to all the other gods because he's the only one that is God. He is better because he has come and he said, I am God, and then he proved it so. What other God has raised from the dead? What other God has defeated the grave? What other God has said that I will rise in three days and then have done it? It is Christ, and it is Christ alone. And this morning, as the world teaches our teenagers and our college students and our children that all of them are the same and all of them are equal, I'm here to tell you, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is right. The others are wrong. The others are condemning. This isn't just the gospel of the scriptures. Paul makes sure that we see that this is the gospel of history. Now there are a lot, history has been filled with a lot of gospels, admittedly so. But there is only one gospel of history. And it is this one. It is the one by which history is marked. It is the one by which history is divided. It is the gospel of Christ. The gospel that Paul himself preaches. And he goes to great lengths to teach us this in the passage this morning. He says in verse 3, he says, and uh, he he died for our sins. It's past tense, right? It had happened in history. Then verse 4, he, he was buried. He really was. He, was. he was buried. Go find the grave. There weren't bones there, though. He was raised on the third day. He, he, he was raised. 
And, and that's actually written to so, so that it implies that he was raised and is still raised. He was raised and is still living. But then he, sto- he, he doesn't stop there. He says, and then he appeared. Then he appeared. He raised. This isn't a myth we're talking about because then he went and he appeared to Peter. And then he appeared to all of, all of the apostles. And, and, and hey, he appeared to 500 other brothers and sisters. If you don't believe me, go ask them. They're still alive, he says. Go talk to them. He, he appeared that, that Jesus really did this. Jesus really died. And Jesus was really buried. And Jesus was really resurrected from the grave. And if you don't believe me, go talk to the witnesses. Go, go talk to the ones that have seen there. Paul is pleading with us. Paul is pleading with the Corinthians here. You see, it's not enough that this is a beautiful story. You understand that? Every every body that has ever read literature would read the gospel and, and admit this is a stunning story. It's a stunning story that that the God of heaven would come down to be among depraved sinners who have rebelled against him, who have offended him, who are enemies of his, who, who he would come down here, become as a human, live homelessly among them, live perfectly among them, and then die for their sake. Everybody would say that's a beautiful story. It has no significance if it's not true. As beautiful as it is, if it's not true, what good does it matter? And so Paul is appealing to the reality of the resurrection. Paul is appealing to the reality that this is the truth, that this really happened. This is history that we're talking about here. And you need to understand that the, what Paul is going, when he's talking about he's appearing, he's wanting to make sure, and this is key to the, the, the argument that he's going to be making in the weeks ahead, that this isn't just some kind of spiritual resurrection that we're talking about. This is not just some kind of hallucination type resurrection that we're talking about. This is literally a physical resurrection. A man that was laying in the grave that is now risen from the dead, walking among us. That you can touch him. That when, when, when Thomas saw him, he literally put his hand inside of his side. Spirits don't appear. You, you can't put your hand inside of a myth. No, we're talking about a physical resurrection here. And what we should be sure to understand that Paul is doing here is Paul is affirming the reality of the miraculous in the gospel. Paul is affirming the miraculous in the scriptures. Again, since, since the 1700s and since the Enlightenment, we, this has all been under attack that, that surely rational people can't believe that some God's going to part the Red Sea. Surely, rational people can't believe that, that God can create everything in six days with his spoken word. Surely, rational people can't believe that, that God would, would save a bunch of people, or a family of people, and a bunch of animals on a boat in the middle of a flood. Like, surely God can't do that. You know what Paul's saying? Why not? Why not? That, that we're talking about the story of a God that comes into history, dies in history while bearing the weight of our sin, while bearing the full wrath of the Father, buried in a grave for three days, and then is raised from the dead. If that's true, and he is 
calling on us to, to go and verify it for ourselves, to go and verify it with all of the other people that have seen it. If that is true, what can God not do? If that is true, why can God not part the Red Sea? If God can raise a man from the dead, he can part water. Why can God not create the universe? If he can come into the world, die for us, and be raised from the dead, if we can believe that, then surely we can believe that he can save a remnant of people on a boat. Surely we believe that he can walk on water. Surely we believe that, that he can rain bread from heaven. Surely we believe that he can consume an altar with fire. There are people that want you to believe that you can have the gospel and not the inerrancy of scripture. There are people that want you to believe that you can have the trustworthy of the gospel while not trusting what the rest of scripture says. That's incompatible. That's illogical. That's nonsensical. If God would lie to us in Genesis, how, why in the world would we think he would tell us the truth in Matthew? If God would lie to us in Exodus, why would we, we believe him in Revelation? No. Paul is affirming the historicity of the Christ, that he really did raise from the dead. You can go and you can talk to them. And if it's not true, just suppose what would have to be true. Think about what would have to be true if this isn't true. This, first of all, would mean that, there would ha there, that we have a team of uneducated sailors and fishermen and, and tax collectors and yahoos from other parts of Galilee that come together to stage a historical coup so significant that time would be marked forever. And that somehow they would get 500 people to bear false witness to their claims. And that all of them would be willing to die for it without one of them recanting or rolling over. What's harder to believe? What's harder to believe? This morning, Jesus is better. Jesus is better. What other God has proven himself this way? What other God has proven himself in the reality of history? What other God is more than a book? What other God is more than a collection of story tales? What other God has done this? None of them have. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is better. Lastly, Paul gets really personal. He gets deeply personal. He says not just that it's a gospel of scripture. And it's not just that it's, it's, a, it's a gospel of history. It's that it's the gospel of transforming grace of which I have experienced. Here's essentially what he's telling the church at Corinth. Look, you have trouble buying the scriptures? Okay. You have trouble hearing all the witnesses and believing we were not in some drug-induced hallucination? Okay. I give you myself as exhibit A. I give you my life. Look at me. How do you explain the transformation that has happened to me? How do you explain that I used to be a murderer and now I'm an apostle? How do you explain that I used to go and kill Christians and now I am one of them ready to die for the faith? How can you explain a switch from someone so wicked to someone following after the Lord with everything that he has? How can you explain it so? I myself have been transformed by his grace. Look at me. He says something in there that's interesting. He says in, uh, in verse 8, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
that phrase there, one un- un- untimely born, most commentators actually believe it was a slang term, a derogatory term that was being used by the Corinthians toward Paul. Remember I told you in the beginning, Paul was not the most popular, popular apostle in Corinth. For Paul, in fact, many of them did not believe he was an apostle at all because he had not walked with Jesus. He had not been in the ministry of Jesus. He came to Jesus, all of us know, much later in Acts chapter 9 on the Damascus Road, right? And so Paul, who had this very homely appearance, apparently, like he, it, it, most people believe that he probably limped and was a very short man and, and by all indications, just a, a hideous man, a sickly man. The Corinth church would look at him and they would say, you won untimely born. In other words, you aborted one. You miscarriage. You, 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 you are not really an apostle. You are an abortion. You're, you're not really a man of God. You are a miscarriage. You know what Paul says to them here? You're right. He says, you're right. I am. I was an enemy of God. I was a persecutor of the church. I am aborted by the world. I am a miscarriage in the world. I am. You're right. But, 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 by God's grace, the world's aborted are now the Lord's adopted. I was an enemy of the Lord, and now I'm a child of the Lord. This is how scandalous grace is, brothers and sisters. Scandalous grace is taking the enemy of God and not just making them a friend, but making them a son, making them a daughter. And for all of us in Christ, that is who we are. We were sinners, we were enemies, we were persecutors, and now we are his children. We were miscarriages, but now we've been born again. And so Paul is saying, you're right, I am. But now I am what I am by the grace of God. See, Paul's testimony is the same as every person that's ever came to the gospel. I used to be, but by God's grace, now I am. I used to be a persecutor, but by God's grace, now I am an apostle. I used to be an enemy, but by God's grace, now I am a son. I used to be dead, but by God's grace, now I am alive. I used to be blind, but by God's grace, now I can see. By God's grace, I am what I am. I think about my brother Shabani. Most of you don't know his testimony, and it's because he's embarrassed by it. But Shabani, when we were at Longhorn, Zach and I were at Longhorn with him, and I said, Shabani, just, what's your story, man? How'd you come to the gospel? How'd you come to Christ? And, and for those of you that don't know Shabani, Shabani is the pastor that we partner with in Swaziland, Af- Africa, and just a kindred spirit to all of us that know him and love him. And Shabani began to tell the story about how he was a part of kind of this gang of thieves. And they would go and they would rob people and they would go and sell the stuff and keep the money, right? And so on one particular occasion, there's a tent revival that's come into town. And, and they'd set up this tent and there was this one businessman in town that was kind of bankrolling the thing. And he had hired the preacher and set the whole thing up. Well, the man that had organized the tent revival owned a business in town that was profitable. And they were going to rob him. And so what, the, what Shabani and his crew decided they were going to do is they decided that they're going to go into town or go to the tent revival just to make sure that the man is there. And then once they see that he's there, they're going to go back and rob his store while he's at the revival. And Shabani says, so we went and I saw him and I saw him there. But when I saw him there, I began to hear a man preach. And so I looked at the other men with me. I said, let's just stay for just a second. Let's listen for just a second. 
He said, and I listened, and I listened, and I'd never heard anything like that before. He said, but by the time I, I had my wits about me, the, the, the revival was over, and it was too late to go and rob him. And so we decided we, we were going to do it the next night. He said, so the next night, the same thing, we, we get together, we go to the tent revival, we make sure the man's there, and the man's there, but the guy's preaching again. He's preaching, and he's preaching, and I know I need that. He said the people there were afraid that I was even there. People were uncomfortable around me. That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? He goes and he responds to the gospel. And I think he told me that he has planted 13 churches now. By God's grace, I was a thief, and now I'm a church planter. By God's grace, people were afraid of me, and now I'm a refuge for the sinners. By God's grace, I used to be, but now I am. And brothers and sisters, I want you to hear me say this morning, whether you were a thief in Africa or you were an eight-year-old at VBS, your testimony is just as remarkable. And your testimony is just as stunning. That you used to be an enemy of God, but now you are a child of God. Now let me just ask you this morning, isn't Jesus better? Isn't Jesus better? Jesus is better than what we find here. Jesus is better than everything else that we see. Jesus is the only one that can transform us from an enemy into a child. This morning, I don't know your story. I don't know if any of you have ever really heard the clarity of the gospel. But this morning, Paul gives it to us. And I'm asking you, I'm pleading with you, come and respond to it. Come this morning to the gospel so that you may, by God's grace, be transformed. So that you might come and take of what he has given to us in history. What, what he has done according to the scriptures. What he has done for you. He has died for our sins. Come this morning that you might be saved. This morning, perhaps, you have not fully affirmed in your heart that Jesus is better. This morning, would you repent? Perhaps this morning, your, your loyalty to him has been wavering. Your faith has been wavering, and the Lord has used the reminder of the gospel message just to, to revive your faith and re-energize your faith. This morning, would you just sing out to him? Would you just sing out to the, to the God that is just better than all the other gods, the God that is supreme to all the other gods? This morning, if you'd like to come and be a member of Iron City, our pastors will be down front, and we would love to receive you and talk with you about membership. Come and respond this morning. Let me pray for us.